Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. We talked last time that there are only two states, the state of grace and the state of sin. Last time we, were, we did a walkthrough on the state of sin. Today we're going to walk that back from the standpoint of being in a state of grace. And we expect that everybody in this room is in a state of grace and therefore is eligible to climb the mountain. Now, um, we're going to start off with a prayer, and this is a student's prayer by St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, the cool thing about this particular prayer is that um, you can pray it uh, whenever you sit down to study, and it actually does help you focus your attention on what it is you're studying. Uh, the key is, uh, when we study online, we tend to be very distracted. We've got all kinds of distractions, and as we... Um, uh, as the night uh, continues to uh, move on, uh, part of those distractions uh, we put in place intentionally in order to keep ourselves awake. And then pretty soon, uh, what you're doing isn't um, the activity itself. Uh, what you're doing is bouncing through the distractions, social media or whatever. Uh, and that becomes the activity. And you think, oh, I'm doing so well because I'm studying. So let's just begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, divine creator, true source of light and fountain of wisdom. Pour forth your brilliance upon my dense intellect. Dissipate the darkness which covers me, that of sin and ignorance. Grant me a penetrating mind to understand, a retentive memory, method and ease in learning, the lucidity to comprehend, and abundant grace in expressing myself. Guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to successful completion. This I ask through Jesus Christ, true God and true man, living and reigning with you in the Father forever and ever. Amen. Now, Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so when we begin our studies, that's how we say hello. Um, when we end our studies, we say goodbye with a prayer, and that provides you a good set of bookends. So what we're gonna do today is we're going to talk about purgatory and it's week three and we're almost halfway through um, our uh, time together at the end of today we'll have hit the halfway point the purgatorio is the midpoint or the halfway point in dante's divine comedy uh, if the um, inferno was 34 cantos meaning one candle get it, to get started and 33 to get into it and get out um, then the Purgatorio is also 33 cantos, and the Paradiso is 33 cantos. Uh, the midpoint of um, our journey is actually going to be around Canto 5051, which we're going to come to um, right around the ledge of Sloth, which is the halfway point through Purgatory. And it's right on that ledge of Sloth that we're going to have a big discussion, something that we're going to not be going to be able to complete today, uh, but I can introduce it, uh, but something that we'll focus next week on. So if you're thinking, okay, what are you going to study next week? It's the relationship between love and free will. 
Love and free will is the centerpiece of the entire comedy, that relationship between um, the love that moves the heavens and the other stars, and the fact that God gives us uh, the, uh, the ability to choose uh, whether to live in the state of sin or whether to pursue the state of grace. Now, we can't do grace on our own efforts, we learned last uh, week, uh, because Dante, who tried to um, uh, pursue salvation on his own efforts, um, was unsuccessful. He kept bumping into these, uh, these um, difficulties uh, incumbent to our human nature, namely incontinence, violence, and fraud, uh, which is an abuse of our lower passions and an abuse of our reason and the manipulation through the abuse of our reason of others. We saw that like in the, um, the panderers and the seducers and the grafters and the simoniacs and so on, the counterfeiters all the way down the eighth circle. We'll move to that next week so that, but that, so that you can see where we're going this week. This week, we're getting ourselves ready for that conversation. And, and when we think of the relationship between love and free will, uh, God so loved us that not only did he give us his uh, son, he gave us hell. Hell is a demonstration of God's love in the sense that we can choose to go there. Uh, we can choose to live outside of eternal joyful communion uh, for all eternity with our creator. And we end up stunted. If, however, even at the moment of death, we choose our creator and we call out to Christ with sincerity, not like uh, where Christ says, you know, there will be some people who call out to me and say, uh, Father, Father, or help me, help me. And I'm going to say, I don't even know you guys. Because they're not calling out with sincerity. They lived a life without faith, uh, without a practice of their faith. And we know from St. James that a faith without works is dead. And we know that a dead faith is a faith that, um, it, it's when we believe in the gospel message, and we know it's true, but we're not doing what Christ tells us to do. John 2, 5, when Mary says to um, the servants at the wedding at Cana, she says, do whatever he tells you. That's what faith is. Um, and as Hebrews 11.1 1 teaches, it's the substance of things hoped for. So all of purgatory is an exercise in faith. It's an exercise in doing whatever Christ tells us, whatever Jesus tells us, as we uh, uh, renounce the vices that held us down in life and embrace the virtues. So it's not so much a place of punishment as it's a place of purification. So let's say we've got these vices. Let's say we've got pride or envy or wrath, and we'll disc uh, discuss those as we move up the mountain. These vices that we have are things that hold us back. They're things that we pursue that we're of the world and of ourselves. What we want to do is pursue virtue. And so the entire mountain is doing that one thing. It's, it's filling people with virtue, but virtue through their own efforts, accepting the grace that God freely provides. This presentation is called La Bonta Infinita, God's infinite goodness, or the infinite goodness, La Bonta Infinita, and how it might be lived. So um, we'll begin. There's that. There's a picture of me uh, with a little more hair than I have now. And uh, there is our mountain. Now, as we talked about in the very first class, uh, the question was asked, uh, did uh, Dante uh, invent the concept of the mountain? And I said, well, you know, um, uh, possibly not. Possibly he got it from something else. And I looked at his resources, and the only instance where you could possibly uh, depict a kind of upward motion is in the Apocalypse of St. Paul. 
So, um, but in the Apocalypse of St. Paul, it's not constructed like this. So we could say that Dante um, invented the mountain entirely by himself in terms of the concept of it. And we can say that we've seen it uh, play itself out in popular uh, media or popular movies. Let's say, for instance, Robert De Niro in The Mission, where he's taking armor of his up to the top of the mountain and dropping it off. Um, but uh, the concept is good in the sense that uh, uh, it will what we end up doing between the time we die and the time we're able to see God is a process of purification. And that process is an uphill climb uh, that's hard, but that the, in Dante's Purgatorio, the way that it um, works is that you start on the first ledge uh, laden with sin, laden with all the sins listed on the, on your forehead in the terms of P or peccata or perdicio. And as you move up the mountain, those peas fall off one after another after another. So that as you climb uh, and become more uh, oriented toward the climb uh, and become more um, filled with virtue, uh, the virtues uh, with which you're filling yourself buoy you up and the climb becomes easier. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that the uh, ledges become any less arduous. Uh, but your heart is filled with greater uh, capacity uh, for the love of man and the love of God. And you recall in First um, John 4.20, where uh, uh, John writes, the apostle writes, uh, he who says he loves God, but not his neighbor is a liar. And uh, we know that um, Christ gave us two commandments, uh, love God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength, as Luke 10.27 um, illustrates, uh, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So this is Dante coming out of uh, of the inferno, and he is being girded with a uh, reed uh, around himself that gives Dante, the poet, the opportunity to demonstrate the very first miracle. And if you pay attention up the Mount Purgatory, you're going to see uh, the entire mountain is filled with miracles, which are nothing more than supernatural uh, breaks into uh, natural events. In this case, when Dante pulls the reed, uh, in order to regird himself uh, with a belt, uh, the reed grows back instantly. And you recall where he lost his belt, uh, the one he had earlier, uh, was in um, the seventh circle of hell, where uh, Virgil took it to drop it into the eighth circle in order to call the monster Gerion, or the monster of fraud. And the fact that he was wearing a rope belt at all is a demonstration or indication of his uh, having been a lay Franciscan, because that's what they uh, they wore. So um, Dante, as a lay Franciscan, is climbing this mountain uh, with a spirit of humility and a spirit of poverty that grows as he moves up. Now, it's very interesting the way he interacts with the Franciscans and the Dominicans in the sphere of paradise, um, or in, the, uh, in paradise in the fourth sphere of the sun where he meets the Dominicans and the Franciscans. Um, and we'll talk about that when we get there. So uh, some questions I can answer as we're moving. Uh, do you think that perhaps the Italian outlook on women and feminism as a largely matriarchal society was partially due to the aforementioned statement about Dante writing about Beatrice? Was Italy always largely a matriarchish society? Interesting question, um, given that um, uh, Italy uh, was also the dominant society in Europe um, for the longest time under the Roman Empire. We, I know that Dante wrote in Italian, 
and he wrote um, in with the glorification of women. He was the first one to do it, uh, and you find out when he meets uh, Bonagenta up uh, in the um, seventh uh, or the sixth uh, ledge that the the one thing that he was doing was the thing that made him better than the rest of the uh, the new style people, which is why uh, he called his own work the sweet new style. So uh, I don't know, maybe uh, uh, worth uh, researching in terms of matriarchal society. He also wrote, it was the first Italian poet to write in Latin, uh, in Italian. He wrote in the language of uh, his region, uh, the Boca um, Toscano, uh, or the Lingua Toscano, uh, in Boca Romano was the expression that the uh, Tuscan language uh, ended up in the Roman mouths. Because um, if you uh, recall Italian politics um, through the Middle Ages, there were no, uh, there was no unity. We didn't get unification in Italy until 1871. So all of the regions actually spoke a different dialect of Italian. And so uh, if you were born in the North, uh, you may be incomprehensible to Italians in the South. And even today, if you speak uh, Sicilian, even in Naples, they look at you as a uh, foreigner. Uh, I know this because uh, I went through Sicily once, I spent a week, and I picked up quite a bit of Italian, what I thought was Italian, and then I get to uh, mainland Italy, and I discover that I'm speaking um, Sicilian and not Italian. Uh, so what are the differences? I don't know, an Italian would know, uh, and even be able to tell you to this day, because there are still regional differences in the way the language works. But Italy was unified before it was unified um, uh, in the late 19th century. It was unified by uh, the Tuscan language that uh, came out of, um, out of Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. And he wrote in Italian uh, precisely because he was writing for women. And if work, uh, he was the first one to do it, then work that was written earlier uh, in the Latin language uh, was work that was not written for women. And so um, uh, he popularized uh, female uh, engagement with literature through writing in a language that females could understand. Um, it's what he says in La Vita Nuova about women who by insight know what love is. Uh, that, uh, that book of poetry, La Vita Nuova, which he actually goes through, if you get a chance to, um, to read uh, La Vita Nuova, and it's very useful for understanding the Purgatorio, uh, you find that, um, that he expressed a great deal of love for Beatrice uh, and went through all kinds of pains to avoid having Beatrice find out that he was the one who actually loved her. He even came up with a screen woman. So he was looking at Beatrice one day, and this woman who was sitting between him and Beatrice turned and saw him looking and mistook his gaze uh, for her and didn't realize that he was looking at Beatrice. And so he realized what had happened, and he decided he'd use this woman as a screen so that Beatrice would not uh, suspect that he liked her. Now, this entire time, they're already betrothed to other people. You know, they got betrothed when they were like 14. Uh, but Dante uh, was passionately uh, or uh, intellectually or spiritually or whatever he was uh, in his mind in love with um, uh, Smitten, if you will, with Beatrice. And so the entire uh, La Vita Nuova, he's talking about Beatrice, he's talking about Beatrice, and he's talking about his own method and technique of writing. So it's like what uh, Edgar Allan Poe does in the philosophy of composition, where he goes through and he talks about the composition process of his writing The Raven. Well, that's what La Vita Nuova is. It's Dante writing poetry, 
and then uh, dropping in an exposition as to what he's doing in the poetry that he's writing, because he wants to teach other people how to do this sweet new style. So uh, suddenly the tone changes in La Vita Nuova because Beatrice has just died. And he's like, whoa, wait a second, Beatrice has died. What am I going to do? And um, he uh, ends up in this uh, terrible turmoil, uh, end of the um, Vita Nuova, until right at the very end, he says, wait a second, I can get my mind around this. I'm going to write something about Beatrice uh, and about um, using Beatrice that no man has ever written before. And suddenly, the, um, the concept of the comedy is born. And um, he takes some time with it. He finishes uh, La Vita Nuova around, what, 1295 or so? And uh, he doesn't really get into starting um, uh, the uh, Purgatorio, I mean, the Inferno, until after 1300. It's like 1303 or 1304. Uh, we know that he stopped for a while and he jumped back into it in 1308. And he didn't publish it until 1314. But at that rate, he was never going to finish the uh, the comedy. Um, so he hunkers down in 13, um, during those years, and he also finishes the Purgatorio, and then he uh, doesn't finish the Paradiso until 1320. When Beatrice meets him at the top of uh, Mount Purgatory and chastises him for abandoning her, he had spent those intervening years studying pagan philosophy and pagan poetry. And uh, certainly, he lost track of his goal which he picked back up later, but only after he was kicked out of uh, Florence. Because he was a political figure in Florence and because he had his wife there and his family there, he didn't have much time to write. And um, if you recall, when he's moving through hell, he's got a lot of people in hell uh, just pointing out the fact, like Chiaco starts it and Vanni Fucci uh, continues it. Uh, he's got a lot of people in hell pointing out that he's going to be, and Farinata as well mentions it, uh, that he's going to be exiled from Florence. And he considers this to be a very dark prophecy. He's about to be kicked out of his homeland, the, meaning Florence. You know, he ends up dying in Ravenna. And the Ravenna's bury him. He's got a tomb in Ravenna. Uh, and a picture of that tomb I've got around here somewhere. When the Florentines said, hey, we want him back. And they, uh, the Ravenna said, no, you can't have him back. You didn't want him in life. You can't have him in death. It's own kind of contrapasso. When he gets kicked out, uh, roughly around the year uh, 1300, to 1303, uh, Florence, under penalty of death if he ever returns, uh, that's when he starts writing. Um, that's when he has the leisure time to start writing. And Cacciaguida in heaven, his great-great-grandfather, explains to him that he has to be put in exile. Now remember, this is, he, the setting is 1300, so Dante the Pilgrim is still a respectable Florentine in the year 1300. He's not kicked out until... Um, the uh, black Gelfs win uh, over the white Gelfs, and he's a white Gelf uh, politically. And the black Gelfs are supported and almost led by uh, the Pope, Bonifacio VIII, which is why he's so uh, uh, down in um, uh, Bonifacio VIII, or uh, Pope Boniface VIII, we would anglicize it. That uh, explains why he delayed in pursuing his uh, goal. He was studying and he started to rise in Florentine politics. And it was only after he got kicked out, as his great-grandfather, a great-great-grandfather explains to him, uh, that he's able to then turn his attention full-time to completing this great work. And his great-great-grandfather says, you know, you're destined to come back here. And he declares him a saint right there. But you've got to go back and you've got to write the Divine Comedy. Well, you've got to go write the comedy. They didn't call it divine until after his death. And it's a comedy uh, because it has a happy ending. 
And you wouldn't think so if you look at the um, gateway into the city of woe, that gateway into hell, uh, that says, abandon all hope ye who enter here. You think, whoa, this can't end well. But it does. It ends in Dante's uh, entering into the mind of God at the very end, and then suddenly waking up and finding himself back at his writing desk. He's got to complete the comedy because that's what um, he's been told uh, is the reason for his exile. So it's got a happy ending. All these dark prophecies uh, in hell uh, ended up ultimately having a happy ending. So um, he climbs out of uh, hell and he's immediately confronted with Cato. So uh, he makes it to purgatory and you find out uh, when he hits the shore, he sees this angel boatman coming. And you start to see all these parallels with the Inferno. So in the Inferno, Acheron is uh, taking souls, uh, or Charon is taking souls from the river Acheron. And he's ferrying them across and taking them into hell. And all of the souls there are anxious to be placed. Because they were what they were in life, they want to continue being that in death. I mean, they chose uh, their eternal destiny. And so they're in an uncomfortable position um, standing there on the shores of Acheron, not being punished at all, you know, because they can't continue doing what it was that they pursued in life until they get into the bottom of, and into whatever their place is going to be in hell, the place to which Minos assigns them. That's being the case. Uh, here, we've got a mirror image of that. We've got an angel boatman coming from the river Tiber, and he sees his friend, Casella, um, and he tries to embrace his friend, and he goes right through the guy. So if you noticed in hell, sometimes uh, he passed through the souls, and sometimes he accidentally kicked them, like he kicks a guy in the, uh, uh, a guy's head in the ninth um, circle of hell. And then somebody else shouts to that guy and betrays him by mentioning what his name is. He says, diablo uh, which means literally what devil is touching you. And that devil, of course, uh, uh, is uh, Dante who accidentally kicks him on the way down. But the fact that Dante could kick him meant that he had some kind of corporeal substance. And we find out on, um, can, in Canto 25 of the Purgatorio what that corporeal substance is made of. So Dante mentions, um, which you may have picked up uh, at the end of the third uh, circle, as he's leaving Chiaco, he, he comes up with a question that he poses to Virgil. He says, well, Virgil, uh, uh, when these guys rise up, uh, are they going to be in worse pain, you know, after the general resurrection? And Virgil says, well, go back to what Aristotle wrote. Said, whatever is something is more complete, uh, the more perfect uh, it is, and the more perfect its pleasure or its pain. What he's saying is, is that uh, the, uh, the incorporeal soul is itself in a nervous condition uh, because the incorporeal soul is, um, is not human in the sense that a human is a composite being uh, made up of matter and spirit. So what does the soul do? We know the soul is a formative principle, and we know the soul forms a body. So these souls that he's kicking and the souls that he's passing through are souls that are formed a body out of the matter, out of the dust in the air, in the matter of whatever it is um, their uh, position is. Their, um, so when we see uh, Marco Lombardo in the uh, third uh, ledge of the Purgatorio, this is a guy who emerges from a cloud of smoke. Part of what Marco is made up of, because he's forming his body from the dust in the air, is smoke. Whereas um, we see uh, these other souls all the way up Mount Purgatory, part of what they're made out of is the substance of the mountain, because they're forming their souls so that Dante can see them out of the dust in the air.
So um, by the time you get down to the bottom of uh, the inferno of uh, the ninth circle, the reason why Dante kicks the guy is that he's in such a, a mass of um, matter uh, that his soul has formed a body out of um, out of the dirt of the floor of hell and the ice of the floor of hell. So it's not just that his eyes are frozen shut with the wind that's beating against him. Uh, it's that his eyes are made of ice in part. Um, so the same thing here. So uh, you find out in Canto 25 and Statius explains it all. He says, well, you know, um, the reason why you're seeing these souls uh, in such twisted pain is not that their bodies are in twisted pain because they don't have bodies. It's the, what he's seeing is a representation of the um, contortions into which these souls twisted themselves in pursuit of their own vice. And uh, the beautiful thing about the Purgatorio is you get to see them untwist as you move up the mountain. In Anta Purgatory, which is all of that below Peter's Gate, uh, we see um, souls waiting to ascend. And uh, there's a time um, uh, thing here, you know, a corporal punishment or um, temporal punishment, we call it. They have to wait, in some cases, 30 times as long as they made God wait before they can go up the mountain. So if they made God wait 10 years, they've got to wait 300 years before they can move up the mountain. We find out that Statius has been there like 1,100 years because he spent um, 500 years, he says, on the ledge of Sloth running around, filling himself with zeal, spent 400 years on the ledge of avarice, filling himself with the virtue of liberality. Uh, so that's 900 years right there. And you pick up the change with the amount of time he would have waited at the River Tiber uh, for the angel boatman to bring him over, uh, the amount of time he would have waited in anti-purgatory before he was able to ascend at all, and so on. Um, so Dante writes, horrible my iniquities had been. Well, this isn't Dante speaking. Uh, this is somebody else. Uh, but infinite goodness hath such ample arms that it receives whatever turns to it. And this is a truth of our faith. You can be the worst sinner, uh, but if you have a genuine repentance and you genuinely want to be um, with God for all eternity, no decree of uh, pope or priest can keep you out of heaven. And so you think, well, wait a second, what about the people who are excommunicated? Well, that's exactly who these people are. Um, excommunication isn't meant to be a punishment. It's meant to be instruction. So if you're excommunicated, you're simply being taught that what it is you're professing is at variance with the church. This is why everybody says, oh, we should excommunicate Nancy Pelosi, who's a Catholic, or uh, uh, Governor Cuomo, who's a Catholic, who openly support abortion. Because they're teaching something at variance with the church, yet we don't excommunicate them. Why? Who knows? While we cannot achieve salvation on our own merits, there are things we can do to prepare ourselves to receive God's grace, which is God's activity within us. That's what grace is. God works through us um, as secondary causes, and uh, that grace flows through us into the world, ideally. And we can stop it up, and we can refuse to allow God's grace to flow through us. And you saw, you saw what happens when we do that. Uh, the entire inferno is filled with people who did that, who pursued the creation instead of the creator who pursued their will rather than God's will. When I first gave this presentation, when I built it, it was during a Lenten season for a Lenten retreat. So the Purgatorio is an excellent um, uh, work to read for Lent. And uh, to actually um, go to confession 
every time you come to a new ledge and confess those sins so that you're actually following in the spiritual journey um, uh, a renunciation of pride, envy, wrath, sloth, um, avarice, gluttony, and um, lust. Which, uh, if you saw the map, is the exact inverse of the direction in which Dante entered hell with lust, gluttony, avarice, wrath, and so on. So here, uh, in hell, we saw that um, there was a disintegration of human community as you move further, uh, closer toward the center point of hell. Here on the Mount Purgatory, we're going to see a reintegration and a gradual reintegration in the um, understanding of human community and how it is that we love our neighbor to prepare ourselves to love God. Because if you don't love the neighbor that you do see, you can't love the God you don't see. So such gifts of grace are uh, described by Dante in his Divine Comedy. And the Mount Purgatory we've already discussed is the ladder that enables our return to God. It's the mountain that was built from the exit wound of Satan's having been shot into the center of all creation. When Satan hit Earth, Purgatory was created. So it's only Earth on which God could have placed man, which is ironic um, because uh, Earth was the very place in which the devil had, um, uh, to which the devil, uh, within which the devil had shot. So we're literally walking on top of Satan and all his angels. Our goal, return to God. So imagine that. Um, now, if we do discover life on other planets one day, it doesn't mean that they weren't created by God, since all of creation was created by God. It just means they haven't yet had the good news. And we on Earth will have the privilege and the responsibility to evangelize them. So if there's anybody in here who's planning on a life of ease and comfort, uh, when the aliens show up, uh, you, your one goal is to go out there and tell them about Christ because they haven't heard that news yet, perhaps, because they're just showing up to the uh, story. So these are the mountains. Uh, what we're going to deal with is not so much the vices because you think, okay, purgatory deals with the vices. It doesn't. We dealt with the vices in hell. Purgatory deals with the virtues, humility, caritas, meekness, zeal, liberality, abstinence, and chastity. And note, um, you can pretty much figure out what all of these virtues do simply by looking at the virtue of liberality. The virtue that is opposed, it's the mean between uh, wasting and hoarding, between avarice and prodigality. So liberality means spending the right amounts at the right times on the right people, and for the right reason, and on the right things, etc. cetera. Uh, but you can't uh, pursue a virtue of liberality if you're wasting all of your substance, which means you don't have uh, the, what it, uh, is needed, or if you're hoarding it, which means you're unwilling to give it up or to dole it out as necessary or as needed. And we have a social justice principle in the Catholic world called uh, the universal destination of goods. Money, uh, which is the great medium of exchange, so it is media, money is not meant uh, be, uh, to flow through us into things that are waste wasteful, uh, nor is it, mean, uh, is it meant to uh, flow into us and not have any outlet. Uh, otherwise, you end up with Scrooge on the one hand or um, the prodigal son on the other. Uh, it's meant to flow through us to the places it needs to go. And in some cases, times that means groceries for your kids. 
In other uh, times, it means um, supporting the homeless man who is parked outside your house, as we learned from the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man stepped over Lazarus every time he went home. When he dies, he sees Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham, which is Christ's way of describing heaven, that you end up going home to your father uh, if you die uh, in, in grace. If you don't die in grace, you, uh, you live your entire eternity as what you were, like Capania says in the seventh circle of hell. What I was in life, I am now in death. So here in purgatory, uh, we see that what you were in life, you are in death, but you are uh, in death somebody who is moving toward heaven. That is, uh, you either died in a state of sin or you died in a state of grace. And if you died in a state of grace, there is no death. There is eternal life. Um, if you die in a state of sin, you're living an eternal death because you can no longer grow spiritually in the mind of God. So uh, that's what this presentation deals with, the seven virtues. Dante began at uh, Peter's Gate. I mean, he's on Canto 9 by the time he gets to this, so we've already been pretty far up the mountain. And Peter's Gate is uh, where St. Peter, and St. Peter's not there. Note, he's got an angel guarding the gate, and he's told the angel, be more willing to let people in than to keep them out. So there are three steps, and those three steps leading up to the gate are the uh, perfect um, act of contrition. That's what they represent. And notice he's got this sword. He's about to cut into Dante's forehead seven peas. And those peas, those peccati, uh, perditios, are going to drop off every time Dante moves up a ledge. But the seven peas are there because they represent the seven vices. Dante isn't there to focus on the vice. He's there to fill himself with the virtue. So these are the three steps. The first step is white marble gleaming, so polished and so smooth that in its mirror I saw my true reflection past all seeming. This is a candid confession. If you go to the confessional and you're there recalling your sins while you're waiting to get in, um, sometimes, and I mentioned this last week, people sit there and they try to cast their sins in their best light. I've lusted after this person, Father, but I have to tell you the background and the context. Well, the, the background and the context isn't part of the confession. It's what makes you feel better about yourself uh, for having entered the sin at all. And maybe there's some mitigating circumstances. You know, well, you know, she, she was looking really good. Or, you know, that, that piece of cake, you know, nobody was going to eat it. And so I just ate the whole thing, you know, um, and kept doing that for 20 years. And now I'm 500 pounds. So uh, don't worry about, um, in a candid confession, trying to put your sins in a good light. It's, you got to be Joe Friday about it. Uh, just the facts, ma'am, you know. Um, and then the priest will then give you um, uh, the, your penance. But prior to that, you've got a candid confession. Then you um, step up to the second step. Stained darker than blue-black in a rough-grained and fire-flaked stone. Its length and breast, uh, breadth uh, crisscrossed by many a crack. You could do a whole research paper just on this. You could do a dissertation just on this alone. That's a symbol of mournful contrition. And the third was the burning gratitude for God's mercy. I mean, you've gone to the priest, you've confessed what you consider to be the worst sin of the entire world, and suddenly you're forgiven. Not only for that sin, but for everything, your whole life. You're forgiven and you're restored completely and wholly to God's grace. Sometimes I think I get off easy. I'm like, well, Father, are you sure you spew Hail Marys? I mean, I probably deserve, you know, a beating or something. In any case, uh, this uh, perfect act of contrition 
is what gets Dante past that gate. Now this is where it gets interesting. Once you're past the gate, you end up moving up seven ledges. And so you end up meeting seven angels. And your goal is to have the angel strike your forehead with its wing. Now, if you recall what St. Thomas says about angels, and remember he was the angelic doctor, and today is the feast of St. Catherine the Great, by the way, um, whom I uh, am fond of telling a good friend of mine who created a website. Actually, he has me managing his website. It's called drawnbylove.com, which is all about St. Catherine. St. Catherine does not feature anywhere in the Paradiso. And the first time I told him that, he blinked and said, I wonder why, until he uh, figured out the dates. Um, Dante wrote about uh, a little while before St. Catherine was born. St. Catherine was, um, died uh, at age 33 in the year 1347. She was in 1314. She was born around the time of, um, oh, that can't be right. She was born in 1347. Somebody can fact check this for me. And she died around 1380. I think that's when she died. Anyway, she wasn't anywhere around uh, at the time of the writing of this. But uh, the angelic doctor, St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, wrote that every angel has a separate and unique nature. So we humans have a common nature, you know, and that's what enables us to, you know, Christ to become human and all of us to be saved through that one act. As Christ saves uh, having both a divine nature and a human nature, he saves all of human nature. These angels, um, each one is unique. They're like snowflakes. So the angel of humility, there is no other angel like the angel of humility. And the angel of humility has one particular nature, that of understanding who he is in relation to everything that no other angel has. So you would think that the, all the angels have all the virtues, and sure they do, uh, but they don't need the human virtues, they have angelic virtues, and they have a virtue that's appropriate to their own measure. To get uh, filled with humility, uh, you have to first uh, understand the nature of pride. And so as you move up the mountain, you see these things called whips and reins. So, um, when Dante steps onto each ledge, he's confronted with the uh, whip. The whip is that which exhorts against the vice. And then as he's leaving the ledge, he is, um, comes upon or passes through the rain. And the rain, um, the whip is that which uh, uh, causes you to pursue the virtue. The rain is that which causes you um, to avoid the vice. So we're pursuing the good and avoiding the evil all the way up the mountain. Those are the whips and the reins. So uh, on the first ledge, he sees the proud, and the proud are hunkered down under these huge boulders that are weighing them down. And those boulders are symbols of their pride. And there's the pride of uh, family. There's the pride of, um, of talent. There's the uh, various kinds of pride that he sees moving around that ledge. And as they move around the ledge, and as they renounce pride, Ultimately, they're embracing the virtue of humility, and they're filling that cavity that's within them. That cavity is a big hole or crater in their soul uh, that is um, what uh, we would say is pride. As they're filling that cavity with humility, their boulder gets less and less heavy until pretty soon they're able to stand up, shrug it off, and walk up to the next ledge. So Dante, when he gets there, um, is bends himself low to talk to somebody in an act of humility. And when he gets up to the next ledge, which is the ledge of Caritas, 
or mercy, he confesses to Sapia, a person he meets up there. He confesses to her, you know, I was just reflecting on those uh, souls of the proud below, and I have this sense that I'm going to spend a long time down there, a very long time, and he's worried about it. But he's passed through it, and he's had that pee removed from his forehead. So one would say at this point, his soul, which is growing spiritually uh, as he's moving up this mountain, and you can really see it start to expand and grow in heaven, uh, because he's not so much moving through heaven as he's growing bigger and bigger and bigger till he gets to the point where he's able to see God. I mean, it's like an arrow shooting to God, but it's an arrow, it's like a snowball rolling down a hill uh, that's picking up more and more snow and growing bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's what's happening here. His soul is starting to expand in its capacity for virtue. Now that he is no longer has to worry about the, virtue, uh, the vice of pride, being filled as he is with the virtue of humility, he's able to better understand and demonstrate his understanding of who he is in relation to everything else to uh, a soul on, um, on the ledge of, uh, of uh, Caritas, the souls that are purifying or being purified from or being filled with the virtue of Caritas or the virtue of mercy as they shed the vice of envy. And the vice of envy is uh, that which expresses sorrow at another's good fortune. So um, envy is sorrow at another's good, which it makes it different from jealousy. I was in a coffee shop once, and I was trying to, uh, as I was moving through, I was, um, this was in the spring of 10, and I was making these um, uh, uh, PowerPoints and these cantos, uh, the ones that you may have found on YouTube by now, uh, for each of the um, cantos all the way through Dante's uh, Inferno and Purgatorio and Paradiso. And I was roughly on the ledge of envy, so it was on my mind. Uh, and I was trying to think, how am I going to characterize this in my PowerPoint in the YouTube video I was creating? And I walk up to the counter at the coffee shop, and I order a cup of coffee, and I pay for it. It was like $2 at Starbucks. They hand me the coffee, uh, the cup of coffee. They take the $2. And then they turn to the woman behind me and they say, oh, we ended up with an extra cup. Do you want it for free? <laughs> and I got to thinking, wait a second. I was standing here first. They should have given me that cup of coffee. And then it occurred to me. I was like, wait, this is envy. I'm actually sorry for her having something good happening to her. And I just turned to her and I said, thank you. <laughs> and I walked off and I wrote my canto, um, or at least my uh, explanation of it. And I thought, wow, okay, uh, I'm filled with envy and I don't notice it. And the only time I notice it is when it's on my mind. How am I going to characterize it? So sorrow over another's good. So the angel of Caritas uh, fills you up with the virtue that enables you to have joy over another's good, which is part of loving uh, your neighbor as yourself. If you would want that good for yourself, then you should be joyful that somebody else is experiencing that good for him or herself. If you don't, you're experiencing the bias of envy and to counter it, you need to fill yourself with the virtue of curitas, or mercy, or love. So Dante moves up, and he gets to the angel of meekness. The angel of meekness uh, is the virtue that's opposed to the vice of wrath. And we saw in hell that wrath has two forms, or two functions. One person uh, called the second one lazy. Uh, we haven't hit lazy yet. Uh, you want lazy, the indolent at the bottom in anti-purgatory. Even lazier, Chiaco in the uh, third uh, circle of hell uh, among the gluttons. But the angel of meekness uh, is uh, the angel that uh, is helping us understand the right amount of anger 
or the right amount of uh, righteous indignation, we would call it, for the right things at the right times and for the right reasons. Now, wrath lashes out at everything. It gets angry at anything at the wrong times and for the wrong reasons and, and for the wrong um, and at the wrong people. And you may see uh, uh, somebody get angry at you, not because they're angry at you, not because you're even part of the equation of their life uh, fabric. You know, you are walking in a public place and somebody turns and snaps at you. You're like, whoa, where'd that come from? It, it's called transferred anger, displaced anger, kind of like what uh, cats will do to each other inside of a house. If you've got two cats inside of a house and they occasionally attack each other for no reason, because there's a cat outside the house that they can't get, they turn to each other and they attack each other, cats they can get. So that's uh, something very similar to how humans will uh, react when we allow our irascible natures um, or our irascible appetites. And the irascibility is... Um, uh, comes out of uh, something called the concupiscible appetite. So it always finds its point of origin and its point of termination back in the concupiscible. So concupiscible is the sensory appetite or the that which feels good or feels uh, provides pleasure, provides pain. So if you've ever had a thorn in your shoe and you're walking, suddenly you feel angry, it's because uh, the thorn's in your shoe and it's stabbing you. Once the thorn is gone from your shoe, uh, you're satisfied and your anger subsides. So anger always uh, comes uh, in and uh, finds its point of origin, its point of terminus in uh, physical pain or, um, or even physical pleasure, the irascible appetite, you know, hope, fear, all of that stuff. So the angel of meekness is the angel that deals with the very material appetite of irascibility. We find uh, a soul in this, uh, in, in this cloud that circles the um, third ledge. Uh, that is angry, and it's angry out of proper measure. And uh, it's either going to be wrathful or it's going to be sullen. And sullenness is when you don't lash out at people, you just keep all that anger inside. You may have met people like this who are just burning and seething angry inside. And you can tell in the way they interact with other people um, that they hate God and man. I mean, they're angry uh, at both God and man. If you want a perfect example of meekness, Christ, uh, when he was turning over the uh, moneylenders' tables in the temple, he is appropriately angry, righteously indignant, at the right time, for the right reason, uh, and against the right people. That's the important thing. And um, to the proper measure. So he doesn't kill those people. He simply uh, disrupts their business activity by turning over their tables. And if you notice, nobody stops him. I mean, there are guards in the temple. Uh, obviously, and there are priests in the temple, and there are people in the temple, but nobody stops him because what he's doing is actually well measured. It's not until later that they hunt him down in the garden and pick him up in the, and um, in the quiet of night manage to transport him to his doom or to what they think will be his doom. It's ultimately they uh, end up becoming the very uh, uh, agent through which all of uh, humanity is saved. Uh, because they uh, bring about the crucifixion, uh, which is followed by the resurrection, at least in terms of their having turned him over to the Romans, uh, the Roman authorities. So uh, Dante leaves uh, and gets to the midpoint. And it's the angel of zeal on which we'll spend most of, um, or it's this ledge on which we'll spend half the time next week. Uh, because it's at this point that the sun goes down the second time. Now, if you um, uh, were read through... Um, uh, the uh, purgatory already, then you know that whenever the sun goes down, souls cannot advance. They can move around, they can move down, 
they can't go up the mountain. So Dante and Virgil are stuck on this ledge throughout the night. While they're on the ledge, they take the opportunity uh, to talk about the relationship between love and free will. And Dante, like he fell asleep um, in Canto 8, he fell asleep and was transported by St. Lucia up to um, uh, Peter's uh, gate in Canto 9. He's going to fall asleep again here at, and on this ledge, and that'll be a second sleep. So at this point, I think we're around uh, the midpoint of the Inferno, around Canto 17 or 18 or something like that. And if you notice, the three sleeps that he has correspond to the uh, three stages of his life. He had met the Beatrice in his ninth year and um, saw her again his 18th year and saw her again, at least um, uh, learned of her again in his, uh, in his 27th year. Uh, patterns of nine are significant, uh, but uh, enough on that for now. It's um, uh, not to interrupt with the narrative of the story. So he takes his second sleep. Um, but on this mountain, on this ledge, he sees these people running around. Now, they were slothful in life, meaning that they were slow uh, to, and they were lazy uh, to, to give themselves fully to God. And for many of them, the reason was they were uh, afraid of man. Uh, they didn't want to be thrown to lions. You know, uh, these were the early days of the church. And you can see this uh, when Statius tells his story. He, you know, he believed in the street preachers. They were, uh, what the street preachers had, were saying was right out of um, poetry that he had read, poetry written by a guy named Virgil. Uh, he believed it. He gave his heart to it. He realized through reading Virgil and uh, understanding what the message the Christians were providing, he understood that one could spread one's hands too wide in spending. And so he stops being avaricious and a, and a prodigal. And he understood that one, um, that the child that was coming, you get this out of the Virgil's fourth eclogue, uh, that a child had been born that could save all of humanity. In understanding this, Statius uh, comes to God. So he's uh, rescued by Virgil in the same way that Dante had earlier in uh, Limbo, or in um, the Dark Wood, said that he had given to Virgil everything he had for his um, salvation. But uh, in the two cases, um, Dante, the poet, or the Dante the pilgrim, uh, had dead-ended he saw uh, just as far as the creature and went no further to the creator. Uh, Statius sees through the creature and embraces the creator. And that's the difference between uh, Statius's ending up in purgatory and Dante finding himself in the dark wood. But on this ledge, Statius spent 500 years because he was so afraid of uh, death that he uh, did not pursue his faith or let it be known that he had that faith. And if you remember um, in uh, literature, Statius was the author of something called the Theobad, and, or the uh, Thebiad. And the Thebiad uh, was uh, the story of the seven against Thebes. So, I mean, he was a poet in his own right, so it makes sense that he and uh, Dante uh, would get along. And when he meets Dante, uh, which is a little bit further up on the next ledge, he says, uh, you know, I would have spent another hundred years here if I could have just ever met Virgil, but I know it'll never happen because Virgil's in limbo and Dante can't suppress a smile. And Stacia sees him and says, what do you, why'd you smile? What, what was that about? And suddenly Virgil gives him permission to say, well, yeah, this is the guy. So um, Providence works in all things. Uh, one of the reasons why Stacia spent 1100 years on the uh, Mount Purgatory 
was so that his own wish, his own deep desire to meet Virgil could actually be fulfilled. Because it just happens that he's released from uh, his final uh, ledge of um, pain, of uh, purification, right when the two poets are passing. So if that's not an instance of God's uh, ultimate uh, 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 great timing, uh, what else is? So uh, the angel of zeal is that angel that perfects, that enables you to have the right amount of angel, at least recognizes it, the right amount of zeal, the right times, the right reasons, and with the right people. That's what they discover uh, as they move off of the uh, ledge. And on the ledge, they have that great discussion that we'll talk about next week, um, the relationship between love and free will. Uh, the angel of liberality, this is where we meet Statius. This is spending the right amount of money on the right things at the right time and for the right reasons. The uh, vices that are opposed are uh, prodigality and avariciousness. The entire ledge is considered to be avaricious, but there are two kinds of avaricious, and one is hoarding and one is um, wasting. And uh, when Dante gets to this ledge, he says, wow, this ledge is so overcrowded that souls could fall off, you know, if they're not careful. And all of the souls have their faces pushed down onto the earth, and they're cleaving uh, the, uh, the dust uh, with their souls. They're cleaving to the dust. And uh, Dante meets the Pope here. He says, you know, uh, I'd like to talk with you, but I'm so close to getting out of this place. So, you know, uh, go away. A notable thing about uh, most of these souls up to this point is that they've been eager to have Dante give a good report of them and to let their uh, relatives know that they're still in purgatory so that the relatives will pray for them. And uh, you uh, may recall Judge Nino in the um, Valley of in the Flowering Valley, which is the base. It's like a base camp of Mount Purgatory. Uh, just before you get to the uh, gate of St. Peter. Judge Nino's wife ended up marrying somebody else, and so she's not praying for him anymore. And he's like, um, you know, she could pray for me, and uh, that would help me get up this mountain. Um, so please go back and let her know that I need prayers. Well, the same thing, um, the opposite thing is happening in hell, where uh, the further Dante descends, the less people want uh, their memory to be reshared uh, with people on earth because they ultimately hate people. They hate uh, their relationships with, their, with, with man uh, as much as they hate the relationship with God. Dante at this point is moving up this mountain and he is uh, taking prayer requests. Um, imagine that all the way up until he hits this point and he says, you know, uh, these guys um, could use prayer, but uh, they've got it. <laughs> they are... Um, uh, they are far enough up the mountain that they can see their own liberation. So, uh, but no less, uh, if you ever have the opportunity to go through a necrology of your family or, or to a family tree uh, and just pray for the dead on that family tree, you're helping them uh, get to heaven. And uh, the idea is continue to pray for them and show your solidarity with them until they give you clear and present signs that they are able to pray for you as souls who are already in heaven, or souls who have seen the beatific vision. Uh, ultimately, everybody who is on Mount Purgatory has already made it to heaven in that their uh, souls in grace being filled with virtue in preparation for the vision of God. Uh, and as such, they can, they can actually pray in Dante's world. And if they can pray, they can pray for each other as they move up the mountain, which is one of the things they do. You hear the prayers happening all uh, up um, Mount Purgatory all the way to the top. So the angel of abstinence is uh, the angel of um, 
that's opposed to the vice of gluttony. So this isn't sexual abstinence, this is uh, food abstinence. And this is where uh, Dante meets or has his conversation with Statius. So Statius is just leaving the ledge of liberality when he uh, bumps into Dante and they, um, they have their discussion, they climb up to the uh, ledge of abstinence. There's nothing for them to do there because Statius doesn't have to worry about purging himself or purifying himself against gluttony or against lust because those weren't the things that held him down in life. So he's free to climb all the way to the top of the mountain. And as soon as he becomes free, the entire mountain shakes in one big soul quake um, because another soul has made it off the mountain and everybody rejoices for the good of that soul. Uh, so they have a joy for another's good rather than um, its opposite, rather than sorrow for another's good. So the angel of abstinence is, the, um, is on the ledge of the gluttons. Dante sees uh, some of the poets that he knew in life. He has some good conversation with them. He and Statius and Virgil continue the climb. The last ledge is the ledge of chastity. And the angel of chastity, this uh, part of the mountain is surrounded by fire. And we see in the flames the souls that are um, being purified from lust. Now, if you recall, uh, the last time we saw the lustful, uh, they were in hell being whipped around by uh, tornadoes. And one of the lustful was... Um, uh, Francesca and Paolo, uh, which is a couple of people that Dante uh, spoke with uh, there. They have no control over the way in which they are being thrown around by their passions, and they're constantly blaming others. Uh, on the ledge of chastity, uh, where these souls are being filled uh, with a, uh, a pure love for one another, rather than a lustful uh, engagement of one another, uh, these souls are moving around uh, ha about half the souls, or many of the souls, are moving clockwise. So they were heterosexuals, and the other half or part are moving counterclockwise, and they were homosexuals. And so you can see uh, Dante is demonstrating here that uh, those who were at variance with the natural order, with their natural design, can still make it to heaven. And they make it to heaven uh, by uh, through an appropriate chastity. They uh, realize that their relationships with others uh, have to be, um, they have to uh, interact in the right way and for the right reasons um, and at the right times and so on, which is the measure of virtue, which is the excellence of a thing. Uh, but the measure of virtue is that which um, is, is not so much the mean between two um, vices, but the right way of acting or the right way of living. And then uh, if you exceed that in one direction, uh, you end up, um, and I'll go back to the ledge of the avaricious since we have a clear example there, you end up hoarding. And if you exceed in the other direction, you end up wasting. Uh, but if you provide the right amounts at the right time for the right reasons and to the right people and with the right people, uh, then you are living um, a true mean or true uh, uh, virtue. And that's the way to live. Now, Dante um, doesn't provide either in hell or in purgatory really uh, opposites in terms of the gluttons and in terms of the, of the lustful, because there weren't opposites. In uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle writes that there's not really an opposite extreme to lust, but he didn't have a concept of anhedonia, which is the inability to experience pleasure. And he didn't have a concept of uh, anorexia. Um, so he said most people 
will pursue pleasure in excess. They're not going to pursue it to a defect. Um, but here in the angel of uh, the angel of chastity is dealing with two kinds of souls of lustful: those who are heterosexual and those who are homosexual. And it doesn't matter uh, that you're homosexual as long as you stop being homosexual. And if you're heterosexual, as you stop uh, treating other people as objects, and that's the real key. But that you uh, see at some point the creator and pursue the creator rather than the created thing. And in order to do that, you have to have an appropriate relationship with your fellow man. So you have to have chaste relationships. And all of us are called to chaste relationships. So in the third sphere of heaven, we're going to see more lustful. So you can see there's, uh, it goes all the way up. Uh, Kunitsa, for instance, in the third sphere, had lots of lovers. She was like the woman at the well and lots of uh, husbands. At some point, she saw through the lover to the beloved, uh, and that is uh, to the creator who made the lover. And at that point, she stops pursuing, uh, like um, the woman called an adultery, the creation as the end goal and begins pursuing the creator, uh, which means that she's going to start having chaste relationships uh, with other uh, human persons. She's going to love them in the way that Christ, uh, in uh, the way that God intended for people to love one another. So those are the angels. And those angels, every time you pass by uh, one to go to the next ledge, uh, strikes your forehead with its wing and removes one of those peas. But anyway, that's the uh, trip up Mount Purgatory. And that place up at the very top, the uh, terrestrial paradise, Paradiso Terrestre, is uh, the Garden of Eden. And it's where man was originally placed prior to his fall. And when the, uh, the archangel um, shows up to um, remove man from the Garden of Eden, he kicks him onto the planet. You can see Adam and Eve walking all the way down the mountain. Of course, there would have been no souls at the time because they were the first people. Uh, and they would have inhabited Earth and uh, populated Earth over the successive generations. As people died, they would have made their way back up the mountain and uh, to God, unless you were like uh, Kachiguita and died in a military uh, battle, a crusade, in which case you'd have been instantly translated to the fifth sphere of heaven among the holy warriors. Uh, we'll talk about that uh, when we uh, talk about the structure of heaven in Dante's um, Paradiso. But here uh, is where he meets Beatrice. We have the handoff with uh, Virgil uh, handing uh, Dante over, uh, human reason handing Dante over fully to divine revelation uh, as faith perfects reason in the way that grace perfects nature. Uh, doing whatever Christ tells you is the ultimate demonstration of a reasonable person. Uh, it only makes sense that if reason is the faculty that is the specific difference between man and the lower animals, um, the rational animal and the non-rational animals, then reason is the thing that enables eternal and joyful communion with our creator. And as such, uh, eternal and joyful communion with our creator is the goal to pursue. It's the most reasonable thing we can do. And therefore, uh, our pursuing our faith, which is an active response to divine revelation, is uh, the most reasonable thing we can do. So uh, next time an atheist tells you, oh, faith is against reason, just point that out to him. Uh, and he'll go, what? The handoff is made. Uh, Beatrice chastises Dante for forgetting about divine revelation and divine love. And then 
thusly chastised Dante crosses the river Lethe, forgets all of his sins, and um, then crosses the river Unori and remembers all the good, then leaps off of uh, Mount Purgatory and flies like an arrow straight into heaven. And Dante, when he's doing this, it just happened. And Beatrice says, well, it would be a greater miracle if completely uh, freed from all sin and dross, you actually stayed on the planet. So, uh, so that, that's the end of the Purgatorio. And uh, this comes at a point where um, uh, we are pure, perfect, and ready for the stars. As human reason, in the form of Virgil tells us, he crowns and miters us as Dante's entering the Garden of Eden um, and leaving uh, through that big wall of fire, his final purification. And to be crowned and to be mitered means that you're not only king of yourself, but you're also um, the ultimate, you're a priest of yourself. And to be mitered, as you know, is to put on a bishop's mitre. And to be a bishop is to be the fullness of your priesthood. So that's the sense there. People, um, priests who are not yet bishops are only living their priesthood in partial. You don't receive the fullness of your priesthood until you become a bishop. And if you ever hear a priest saying, oh, I'd like to become a bishop, it's not necessarily because he's uh, proud or he lacks in humility. It's simply because he wants to pursue the fullness of his priesthood. The, the pride part Pope Francis tried to deal with uh, by removing, by no longer appointing or allowing people to be made monsignors. And uh, if you've noticed, since Pope Francis came uh, to become Pope, we haven't had any monsignors. There's been no new monsignors in like seven years. Whereas at one point here in the Archdiocese of St. Louis, there were 27 or 28 Monsignors made on a single weekend. Uh, if you recall uh, when Monsignor Ramakati became a Monsignor. If you know Ramakati, Monsignor Cronin became a Monsignor. That was all done in one weekend, uh, in one um, big go. And everybody was like, oh, I'm a Monsignor now. <laughs> and other people who weren't made Monsignors were like, you know, it's okay. I didn't want to be a Monsignor anyway. <laughs> like okay whatever but pope francis said you know we're not going to do that anymore we're not going to give people heirs we're not going to um pursue an honorific simply for to uh, satisfy people's pride and uh, into the practice now the next pope that comes along you're going to see a new rash of monsignors because the next pope will probably end that practice allow more monsignors to be made and suddenly all those people who wanted to be monsignors for the time of the uh, franciscan papacy will uh, be able to impress upon their bishops uh through their uh, holy ardor uh, that they deserve it. And then you'll see uh, a round of monsignorships like nobody has ever seen. Okay, so let's talk about your questions. Is Dante's rendering of time in purgatory by these characters based on the church's rendering of indulgence as removing days or years from the time in purgatory? Or does it seem like he's just winging it? You know, in some cases, it seems like he's just winging it. In other cases, he actually is working with the structure of temporal punishment. And so, but, you know, he, uh, provides Statius with 500 years on one ledge and 400 years on another. There's no formula for that. You know, it's not like um, you can say, oh, this person deserves 500 or 1,000 years on any given ledge. Uh, the reason why he came up with the formula was because he needed to account for the time that Statius actually died in real life to the time that uh, he and Virgil are passing him in the year 1300. Uh, so that he can have that big soul quake and so that uh, Statius can meet Virgil, whom he wanted to meet his whole life, but uh, they were born at different times, you know, for a poetic license. If you, in Divine Mercy Sunday, as you know, we just passed it, if you go to confession on Divine Mercy Sunday, uh, all of your temporal remission is removed as well, all your temporal punishment. 
And so a lot of the Divine Mercy Sunday is a great day for people confessing uh, because uh, their, their slates are wiped completely clean. Whereas in other times when you go to confess, uh, you are freed from the sin, but you still have um, temporal time. You still have a uh, temporal punishment to look forward to. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting, the formulas. Dante is working with those formulas as best as he, um, as he can through poetic license. Uh, St. Catherine Steele lived in the 14th century, yay, uh, 1347 to uh, 1380. Uh, vowed to the life of virginity at age seven. Entered the third order of St. Dominic at age 15. Now, um, the third order of St. Dominic is the tertiaries. It's the uh, lay Dominicans. It's what Shane and I are. Anybody in this room can become a lay Dominican if you want to. And uh, Shane uh, can tell you how to do it. Um, so, uh, question. Uh, how do we know what years Dante wrote when he paused writing and continued writing again? What sources is this found in or how do we know? That's a matter of historical record. So uh, we know when he ended um, the uh, La Vita Nuova uh, because he published it in the year 1295. We know that um, he, when he ended, when he began writing uh, the, Purgat uh, the Inferno, uh, in the letters uh, that Gemma Donati, and I believe I've sent those to you, uh, in her complaints to her mother, she says, you know, he walks around this house, he, he pines over a woman who didn't give him the time of day when she was alive, and he's, she's even dead, and he's still, like, going on about her. And then uh, it's not enough that he makes up these, um, that he talks about people he doesn't like, he talks about his enemies, but he has to make up weird punishments for them in hell uh, and, and show how they're being suffering for all eternity. So she's complaining about this, at least uh, if we take the letters as authentic, we have a sense then that Dante is thinking about the Inferno uh, prior to the year 1300. But we do know that he didn't have time to write it. Um, he may have like, uh, done some drafts or whatever, but it's not until after he goes into exile that he really puts his pen to paper. And we know he paused writing at a certain point uh, because around Canto 8 of the Inferno, he says, okay, I'm starting back again into my long work. So, you know, there's a, a literary reference in his own writing that he's uh, stepped away from it for a bit. And then he flies through the writing of this thing and he gets uh, patrons. Like we would go and get a, uh, at a patreon.com account. He gets people to support him in his writing. Now this entire time, he doesn't have a job to do. He's actually away from Gemma Donati, his wife, uh, which seems to free up a lot of his time. And he's away from his four kids. Uh, though the kids do meet with him in exile. So there's some evidence of that over um, the later years. As his children turn into adults, they find him and they, uh, they hang out with him. So you can see this in Dante's writings. So um, it's a, I'd say just a historical record, you can look it up. Why is Dante, why is it called the Divine Comedy? Um, divine Comedy, uh, Dante originally called it the Comedy. Uh, and the Comedy because it's a man who starts out in tragedy and if you look at the timeline, uh, the entire Inferno is done within a period of 24 hours. From the time he enters hell to the time he leaves, it's one day. The Purgatorio takes three days of time because we know he falls asleep at three points. As the sun goes down, he has to wait through the night. Um, <clears throat> and one of those dreams, uh, one of those times he falls asleep is right here on the ledge of uh, Sloth as he's about to ascend to the ledge of Avarice he sees a vision of a siren. In his dream, uh, there's an old hag, and the more he looks at the old hag, the more beautiful she becomes, until she becomes this object uh, about which he's going to lust. And a lady comes down from heaven, and we assume that this is Mary, 
and says, Virgil, what is this? So human reason steps in and exposes this old hag for what she is by ripping open her belly and creating this foul stench. So Dante talks about that on the mountain, that um, these are things that he struggled with, and it makes sense that he's entering into these ledges of an excess of love for the created thing, that he would have that last warning uh, come at him. So, but uh, because he sleeps, we understand that there's a pattern of time happening here. So he actually gets in purgatory, having left on a, uh, gone through hell on, on a Friday. He gets up here uh, by Wednesday, and then he shoots into heaven and then uh, makes it to God uh, very quickly across the span of 33 cantos, but there's no real time uh, passing in heaven. At least it's not marked by anything. It's called divine because after Dante died, the name divine was given to it because it's a journey of man's progress to his salvation. Uh, so it's the progress of the soul to its ultimate salvation. Okay, uh, from Lauren. I know we talked about Cato in the first week, but did he commit? But he did commit suicide. Did Dante ever say why he wasn't in hell, or do you leave it up to the reader? Dante doesn't say why he wasn't in hell, um, but Dante uses him as an example of somebody who pursued freedom, and we know that because uh, Cato of Utica, uh, as he was called, because at one point he, he found himself in Utica, and he, there were like um, ten thousand. Uh, Italian citizens with him, and he needed to get them past an army. Uh, they were fleeing from Caesar uh, in back to Italy safely, and he was able to do it. So um, I was in Utica for uh, a little while. Uh, I lived in Tunisia for two years uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer, and I was right there in Carthage. I was right there in all those Roman ruins. It was incredible. But to know that Cato was there, and he managed to get 10,000 people across the desert into uh, safety without losing anybody is um is pretty interesting but um but cato uh though he was pr a pretty incredible dude he fought against caesar whom he considered to be a tyrant and when caesar ended up winning the wars uh after crossing the rubicon and taking a becoming dictator of rome uh, caesar wanted to reconcile with all his political enemies and he forgave everybody he forgave brutus he forgave cassius he gave them positions of power um which is why the betrayal with Brutus and Cassius was so vile, because he was somebody to whom they actually owed uh, a debt of, of their lives uh, because they had warred against him. Cato didn't want a part of it. He didn't want to accept forgiveness from somebody that would eventually, uh, that would be tyrannical over him. And so he killed himself out of uh, a desire for freedom. And it's because of that that he makes a good guardian, uh, if you will, or a good symbol for purgatory because it's a place of freedom. It's a place where people are able to establish a beachhead of freedom. So whether or not Cato actually ever gets to go up the mountain himself, uh, Dante doesn't say. Um, Dante does say, if you'll uh, see in the first and second cantos, uh, Virgil says, hey, I saw your wife, Marcia, in limbo. Do you want to hear about her? And Cato says, no, 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 she's dead to me. Literally, dead to me. Uh, which is interesting because uh, Cato in life gave his wife uh, to another man. And when the other man died, he took her back. Uh, but he could never take her back from this because the gulf between them was too much. You can, it's, uh, that's a historical record. You can read about that. Um, I know Dante speaks a lot about the depravity and wickedness of Florence. Does the comedy offer any hope for it in Italy? It does. So um, ultimately that hope is found in Sordello, where he's talking about um, the way politics should be. And the hope is found in Caccia Guida as he's talking about um, 
the way that all of Christendom will be. At the same time, they're talking about the mongrelization of Florence and of the various Italian states because the ancient families are being overrun by these newcomers, these immigrants. That mongrelization is diluting the gene pool. Uh, it's actually probably improving the gene pool. If you uh, think about, um, I know that my great Arabic family uh, has been improved with, um, uh, with my marrying a Swede, uh, largely because uh, the men in my family, are, I think I'm the tallest one, I'm 5'10". My boy, because he's got Swedish genes, is six foot two, and he's only 15. God bless the Mafud uh, family as it grows taller. Uh, we're a bit like those um, uh, hobbits uh, who drank the, uh, what's that water called, Shane? Uh, the, uh, with the city of the Ents, they drink Enten water. It's the Entdrot. Alex, does it have a specific name, or is it just the Entdrot? There you go. I've, I've heard Entdrot and Entmoot, both. Entmoot. 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 Gathering, I believe, right? <laughs> no, you're right. Excuse me. So yeah, and drought, I think is what it is. Just a drought, yeah. Thank you. Uh, inbreeding is bad. Diversity or, uh, is good, I think, uh, expanding the genetic pool. But uh, they considered it mongrelization. So. His poor wife took uh, years to get over her. He actually never got over Beatrice, uh, though he did uh, accomplish his goal. You know, he wrote of Beatrice what nobody had ever written of any other women, a woman. And this is what makes it a scholastic work. Uh, Dante is narrativizing St. Thomas and Aristotle and all of the ancient poets. He's Christianizing um, in some way paganism in the same way that St. Thomas uh, uh, redeemed philosophy. And if you recall, when Thomas uh, died in 1274, um, in 1274, within a few years in 1277, the Archbishop of uh, Paris, uh, Bishop uh, Stephen Tempier, had placed an interdict on uh, St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas' writings. He said, you know, some of this is just, uh, it's, it's, it, it doesn't resonate with our faith. At one point, uh, the pagan writings themselves, uh, the translations that were coming into Europe, everybody ate up all, all over the place. And they were like, oh, this is wonderful. This is philosophy. This is reason, you know, and so on. And then the question was, how do we reconcile it with our faith? And so you've got an entire school in Paris, uh, a Parisian school that engaged Aristotle as a, a way to help be us better understand the reasonableness of our, our Christianity until the De Anima gets translated. In the De Anima, it appeared to everybody that, uh, that Aristotle was saying that the soul died with the body. And there was one guy who stood up and said, well, wait a second, can we all just stand back a bit and try to understand what Aristotle was saying before we condemn him? And that guy was St. Thomas Aquinas, who began a series of commentaries on uh, Aristotle uh, using resources that he found all over uh, Christendom and Islam. And uh, St. Thomas was able to demonstrate uh, that there was nothing wrong with uh, the pagan philosophy. It just had to be better uh, understood than what the Muslims were able to do with it. And so um, uh, when St. Thomas died, you think, okay, that's the height of scholasticism. Um, what comes next? What comes next is the narrativization that we find in Dante's Divine Comedy. And then after that, we fall into um, uh, the uh, Renaissance uh, with, um, with Petrarch and his love of Laura. And suddenly we're back in humanism. And that lasts a long time. So for next week, um, just read The Sphere of the Moon, because we're not going to get that far into paradise. Uh, the Ledge of uh, Sloth in Purgatory. And it's those two conversations. It's the conversation around the midway point of the entire um, 
comedy where Virgil and Dante are talking about the relationship between free love and, uh, and um, between free love, between love and free will is a difference. Uh, so the relationship between love and free will on the ledge of sloth. So um, the fourth cornice in purgatory and then in the sphere of um, heaven on the moon sphere, the very first sphere of heaven, uh, when Dante meets Picarda and uh, he asks um, uh, Beatrice a very pointed question. Well, wait a second. How does this free will and love thing work? What's the dynamic here? And it's those two conversations, the conversation based on reason and a conversation based on revelation that bring the fullness of the answer to that. That's what we're going to talk about next week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God in heaven, thank you for this time to gather, to study the works of Dante in his conceptions of hell, purgatory, and paradise. May we use it to grow closer to you. May we fill your will in all we do. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. That's a good prayer. Thank you for that, Alex. Um, okay. See you, everybody.